Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 85. This show is entitled The Woman Who Gave Birth to Rabbits. It's been quite a while since the last Mysteries Abound podcast but as you probably know by now I'm in the middle of moving homes. We only have one week to go and we can move in and I can set myself up with a new studio in one of the bedrooms instead of having to wait for everyone to leave from the house where I'm currently staying. It's been good but it'll be nice to have my own place. Anyway, that's enough. On with the show. Our first article this week comes from the mentalfloss.com website. The creepiest thing ever. L'inconnu de la Seine by Chris Higgins. In the early 20th century, a popular piece of art for the fashionable French home was L'Inconnu de la Seine. The translation means The Unknown Woman of the Seine. A completely creepy death mask of a young woman whose body had been pulled from the Seine River in Paris sometime in the 1870s or 1880s. As the somewhat questionable story goes, a pathologist at the morgue found the unknown woman's face enchanting, so he made a death mask, a plaster casting of her face. The resulting cast was widely reproduced and became both a popular objet d'art as well as extremely influential to writers, artists and indeed young girls who attempted to replicate her dead looks and you thought your friends were goth in high school. Having said all that, there are some questions as to the real origin of the mask. Whether its source was indeed a dead woman, or if it was a life mask from an unknown living woman who never spoke up. But let's just stick with the standard story and see how creepy it gets, shall we? As Wikipedia explains... In the following years, numerous copies were produced, 
the copies quickly became a fashionable, morbid fixture in Parisian bohemian society. Albert Camus and others compared her enigmatic smile to that of the Mona Lisa, inviting numerous speculations as to what clues the eerily happy expression in her face could offer about her life, her death and her place in society. The popularity of the figure is also of interest to the history of artistic media relating to its widespread reproduction. The original cast had been photographed and new casts were created back from the film negatives. These new casts display details that are usually lost in bodies taken from the water, but the apparent preservation of these details in the visage of the cast seem to only reinforce its authenticity. Critic A. Alvarez wrote in his book on suicide, The Savage God, I am told that a whole generation of German girls modelled their looks on her. According to Hans Hess of the University of Sussex, Alvarez reports, the inconnu became the erotic ideal of the period, as Bardot was for the 1950s. He thinks that German actresses like Elisabeth Bergner modelled themselves on her. She was finally displaced as a paradigm by Greta Garbo. But wait, it gets creepier. Have you ever taken a CPR class? Then perhaps you've locked lips with Le Connu. In 1958, the woman's face was used on the first CPR doll, dubbed Rescue Annie. Some have thus called hers the most kissed face of all time. Despite all these kisses occurring roughly 80 years after her death, no, not creepy in the slightest. La Inconnue de la Seine was a major inspiration for artists of all kinds. In Influence and Authenticity of La Inconnue de la Seine by Anya Zeidler, it is revealed that La Inconnue influenced artists including Albert Camus, Rainer Maria Rilke and Anais Nin among others. You can read more about the La Inconnue de la Seine at Wikipedia and check out confirmation of the Rescue Annie story from Snopes. But whatever you do, do not stare at her eyes for more than 30 seconds, or they will fly open and you will lose your mind. Okay, I made that last part up, but why not throw some more creepiness on the pile? we're hanging around with people that are not with us anymore. From the www.oddityscentral.com website, an article by Sumitra. Mystery surrounds a Colombian cemetery that turns buried bodies into mummies. The ancient Egyptians spent centuries developing their mummifying techniques. But at a cemetery in San Bernardo, a small Colombian town, Corpses somehow become naturally mummified in their coffins. 
The phenomenon was first noticed 15 years ago by gravedigger Eduardo Cifnuentes. The burial pit was full of bodies, he said. I didn't like stepping on them because they were human like us, so I started organising them. It's only because of Eduardo's efforts that the mummies are being talked about. He said that the mummified bodies had been around since about 1957, but no one paid any attention to them. I like the idea of keeping them for posterity, he said. With the passage of time, the mummy's clothes and skin have turned brown. Their skin looks pasty and wrinkled. Scientists have no idea why this is happening. The only other site in Latin America where natural mummification takes place is the Guanajuato, a town in central Mexico where underground gas and soil conditions are the secret. But the same cannot be said for San Bernardo, because bodies are buried in chambers above the ground, as is customary in Colombia, so they do not come in contact with the earth. Locals have a few explanations of their own. Some attribute it to the purity of the village water and lack of chemical additives in their food. A few of them think the ground temperature of the village is conducive to the mummification process. Some think it's because of two unusual fruits in the local diet, guatilla and balu. Guatilla is a hard fruit about the size of an orange. It is deep green in colour with thorns on the skin. Villagers peel and boil the fruit and add it to their soups. Baloo looks like a giant green bean pod that has been opened. Its oversized purple beans are cooked and mashed into flour for cakes. Another interesting explanation is that around 1957, the cemetery was moved from its old location to the current one. I think the location of the cemetery, the actual site, I think it is something to do with the universe, because it never happened at the old cemetery. Never. No mummies ever came out from there, said Jose del Carmen Roja, a local. For now, the mummies are all set to become a major tourist attraction in Colombia. Mayor Antonio Acosta has ordered the construction of a special museum behind the cemetery, where eight of the best preserved mummies will be displayed on concrete slabs under glass. While tourism could boost the economy of the small village, not all the locals are happy with the idea. Claudia Garcia, a San Bernardo housewife, said, Some people say they're not going to have a bunch of kids coming along and poking fun at their dead relatives. While that might be true, it looks like San Bernardo's dead will succeed in putting this sleepy little village on the map. The village of San Bernardo has a population of only 17,000 people. It is a three-hour drive from the capital city of Bogota. Currently there are about two dozen mummies arranged in standing position against the walls of an underground crypt of the local secretary. And if you'd like to have a look at a couple of these mummies and a short video associated with it, visit the show notes at www.origins.info. Click on the link to the Mysteries Abound show notes and then on the link to episode 85 of the Mysteries Abound podcast and then on the link to this article.
and from the www.telegraph.co.uk website. Phobias may be memories passed down in genes from ancestors. And this is an article by Richard Gray. Memories can be passed down to later generations through genetic switches that allow offspring to inherit the experience of their ancestors, according to new research that may explain how phobias can develop. Scientists have long assumed that memories and learned experiences built up during a lifetime must be passed on by teaching later generations or through personal experience. However, new research has shown that it is possible for some information to be inherited biologically through chemical changes that occur in DNA. Researchers at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta found that mice can pass on learned information about traumatic or stressful experiences, in this case a fear of the smell of cherry blossom, to subsequent generations. The results may help to explain why people suffer from seemingly irrational phobias. It may be based on the inherited experiences of their ancestors. So a fear of spiders may in fact be an inherited defence mechanism laid down in a family's genes by an ancestor's frightening encounter with an arachnid. Dr Brian Dias from the Department of Psychiatry at Emory University said, We have begun to explore an underappreciated influence on adult behaviour, ancestral experience before conception. From a translational perspective, our results allow us to appreciate how the experiences of a parent, before even conceiving offspring, markedly influence both structure and function in the nervous system of subsequent generations. Such a phenomenon may contribute to the etiology and potential intergenerational transmission of risk for neuropsychiatric disorders such as phobias, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. In the study which is published in the journal Nature Neuroscience, the researchers trained mice to fear the smell of cherry blossom using electric shocks before allowing them to breed. The offspring produced showed fearful responses to the odour of cherry blossom compared to a neutral odour, despite never having encountered them before. The following generation also showed the same behaviour. This effect continued even if the mice had been fathered through artificial insemination. The researchers found the brains of the trained mice and their offspring showed structural changes in areas used to detect the odour. The DNA of the animals also carried chemical changes known as epigenetic methylation on the gene responsible for detecting the odour. This suggests that experiences are somehow transferred from the brain into the genome, allowing them to be passed on to later generations. The researchers now hope to carry out further work to understand how the information comes to be stored on the DNA in the first place. They also want to explore whether similar effects can be seen in the genes of humans. Professor Marcus Pembury, a paediatric geneticist at University College London, said the work provided compelling evidence for the biological transmission of memory. He added, It addresses constitutional fearfulness 
that is highly relevant to phobias, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorders, plus the controversial subject of the transmission of the memory of ancestral experience down the generations. It is high time public health researchers took human transgenerational responses seriously. I suspect we will not understand the rise in neuropsychiatric disorders or obesity, diabetes and metabolic disruptions generally without taking a multi-generational approach. Professor Wolf Reich, head of epigenetics at Babraham Institute in Cambridge said, however, further work was needed before such results could be applied to humans. He said, these types of results are encouraging as they suggest that transgenerational inheritance exists and is mediated by epigenetics. But more careful mechanistic study of animal models is needed before extrapolating such findings to humans. It comes as another study in mice has shown that their ability to remember can be affected by the presence of immune system factors in their mother's milk. Dr. Miklos Toth from Weill Cornell Medical College found that chemokines carried in a mother's milk caused changes in the brains of their offspring, affecting their memory later in life. It was September 27, 1726, and Mary Toft was going into labour. The 24-year-old peasant who worked in hop fields of rural England called out for her neighbour, Mary Gill. Gill rushed inside Mary's house and found her squirming in pain. Then something unusual happened. Mary hovered over a bucket and gave birth to a monster. The Woman Who Gave Birth to Rabbits by Lucas Riley and this is from thementalfloss.com It was a ghastly but miraculous birth. Gill ran to find Mary's sister-in-law, a midwife by trade, and told her the baffling news. The baby looked like a rotten jumble of animal parts. The family quickly sent the remains to a local surgeon, John Howard, a man with over 30 years of experience delivering babies. Howard inspected the remains, writing that they resembled three legs of a cat of tabby colour and one leg of a rabbit. In them were three pieces of the backbone of an eel. Yes, an eel. Howard was sceptical, but begrudgingly visited Mary. He complained that she was difficult to work with. Mary is of a very stupid and sullen temper, he later wrote. But then it happened before his eyes. Mary gave birth to a baby bunny. It was like magic, except the rabbit wasn't coming out of a hat. The proud mother of a cat-eel monster, Mary became a local celebrity. Over the next month, Howard witnessed Mary give birth to eight more baby rabbits, and more were on the way. He preserved the bodies in alcohol and sent letters to prominent physicians all over England about the mystery. On November 9 he wrote, I've taken or delivered the poor woman of three more rabbits, 
all three half-grown, one of them a dun rabbit. The last leapt 23 hours in the uterus before it died. As soon as the 11th rabbit was taken away, up leapt the 12th rabbit, which is now leaping. If you have any curious person that is pleased to come post, may see another leap in her uterus, and shall take it from her if he pleases. I do not know how many rabbits may be behind. One physician who received Howard's letter was the surgeon to King George I, Nathaniel St. Andre. The king was curious, so he sent St. Andre to investigate. It could not have been a worse choice. St. Andre was obviously no fan of the scientific method. He believed Mary's case before stepping in the door. St. Andre wasn't known for his medical prowess anyway. George only gave him the gig because he spoke German the king's native language. When St. Andre visited Mary, he felt her belly and confidently deduced that the rabbits were forming in her right fallopian tube. The belief cemented when he personally helped Toft deliver a rabbit's head, her 15th. Over the coming weeks, Mary became a national sensation. On November 19, 1726, Mist's Weekly Journal reported, From Guildford comes a strange but well-attested piece of news that a poor woman who lives at Godalman near that town was about a month past delivered by Mr John Howard, an eminent surgeon and man midwife, of a creature resembling a rabbit. About fourteen days since she was delivered by the same person of a perfect rabbit and in a few days more after of four more. They died all in bringing into the world. For rabbit-peddling merchants, the gossip was a terrible blow. The public was disgusted. Rabbit stew dropped from Britain's supper tables. The public horror was so great that the rent of rabbit warrens sank to nothing. And nobody, till the delusion was over, presumed to eat a rabbit, recorded James Caulfield. Doctors in the public believed Mary's story because of a popular pseudoscientific theory circulating at the time called maternal impression. They believed that a mother's emotions and imagination could cause birth defects and disorders. A pregnant woman who was startled by a rabbit, as Mary claimed, could easily pollute the fetus with her thoughts, leading her to pop out baby rabbits. This wasn't just a crackpot idea from the 1700s. It lasted until the early 20th century. King George followed the hype closely, so he sent another surgeon, Syriacus Allers, to triple check. Unlike his fellow medical men, Allers didn't buy into the maternal impression theory, so when he visited Mary, he wasn't impressed. Despite witnessing seven rabbit births, the count had now reached 17, Allers remained sceptical. On November 29, Mary was taken against her will to London for study. She was locked away in a bathhouse. With King George's court expectantly ogling her, Mary suddenly stopped having rabbits. She did, however, break into a nasty fever, slipping in and out of consciousness. While the dukes took turns watching Mary, Alice dissected some of the specimens in his lab. Something he found wasn't right. The rabbits appeared to have been cleaved with a knife, 
and one contained droppings full of corn and hay. By December the 4th, the jig was up. A porter was caught sneaking a baby rabbit into Mary's chamber. When questioned, he claimed she had bribed him. A separate investigation found that over the past few months, Mary's husband had bought a suspicious number of rabbits from the town's merchants. Evidence was mounting. On December 6th, the court told Mary they would perform a painful experimental pelvic surgery to see what made Mary so unique. To quote, they said they were going to send in a chimney sweeps boy. On December 7, Mary confessed that it was all a hoax. For St Andre, the timing was terrible. Days earlier, he had published a 40-page pamphlet called A Short Narrative of the Extraordinary Delivery of Rabbits. He explicitly bet his name on the account's authority. His reputation fell into shambles. He lost his job and the whole medical community became London's laughing stock. But how did Mary dupe the King's team of smarty-pants physicians? Truth is, Mary had been pregnant earlier in the year but miscarried. While her cervix was still open, an accomplice inserted the body of a cat and the head of a rabbit, which her unwitting neighbour helped deliver. As the ruse became more elaborate, Toft sewed a special pocket in her skirt where she hid bits of filleted rabbit. When the doctors weren't looking, she'd tuck them inside herself and feign labour. Mary believed it was her ticket out of poverty. In her words, it was to get so good a living that I should never want as long as I lived. Back then, freak shows featuring human oddities, like co-joined twins and legless magicians, were popular ways to rake in the dough. Mary was sure that would have room for a lady pregnant with rabbits. But Mary didn't make a penny from the charade. She was thrown in jail for five months and came home just as poor. When she died in 1763, the parish epitaph read, Mary Toft, widow, the impostress rabbit.
When the likes of George Clooney, Matt Damon and Bill Murray come storming across the film screens this winter, in the drama The Monuments Men, viewers will be immersed in the world of Nazi art theft. The Monuments Men were a group of some 300 Allied officers, charged with locating, protecting and recovering art and monuments that were endangered by the fighting in World War II. They would eventually learn of Hitler's elaborate and highly organised plan to strip Europe of its art. From the edition.cnn.com website Did the Nazis also steal the Mona Lisa? And it's by Noah Shani. Indeed, Hitler had established a military unit solely dedicated to art and archive theft and made detailed plans to restructure the entirety of his boyhood town of Linz, Austria into a city-wide supermuseum containing every important artwork in the world. We have the so-called Monuments Men to thank for the salvation of tens of thousands of masterpieces among them the estimated five million cultural objects stolen during the war. But while the film will focus on two great trophies, Jan van Eyck's adoration of the mystic lamb and Michelangelo's Bruges Madonna, there will be something of an elephant in the screening room, for a fascinating question remains, and one with a complicated answer. Did the Nazis steal the Mona Lisa? The answer is that they thought they did. The most famous act of theft associated with the Mona Lisa took place about a century ago. December 14, 2013 marks the 100th anniversary of the return of the world's most famous painting to public display after it was stolen in 1911 from the world's most famous museum. Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa was swiped from the undersecured Louvre Museum by an amateur Italian painter and handyman named Vincenzo Perugia. Perugia was under the mistaken impression that the painting had been looted by Napoleon during his Italian campaign. This was a pretty good guess, for through his art theft unit, the first military unit in history dedicated to art theft, Napoleon had made off with tens of thousands of artworks during his Italian campaign. This was a pretty good guess, for through his art theft unit, the first military unit in history dedicated to art theft, Napoleon had made off with tens of thousands of artworks during his Italian campaign. Leonardo's painting was not among them, however, as it had left Italy with the elderly Leonardo when he spent his twilight years under the protection of the French king, Francois I, who legally purchased several of his paintings after his death, the Mona Lisa among them. But Perugia had missed the lecture in historical detail. He saw an opportunity to repatriate the painting when the firm for which he worked as a carpenter and glazier was hired to build protective cases to cover some of the Louvre's most famous works, ostensibly to protect them from attack after an anarchist had slashed an English painting in protest. 
Perugia found himself with a Louvre worker's uniform and direct contact with the Mona Lisa. On the night before August 2, 1911, he hid inside a closet in the Louvre, waiting for the footfalls of the night guards to fade into the distance. In the early morning hours, he slipped out of the closet, removed the Mona Lisa from its wall in the Salon Car of the Louvre and retreated to a service staircase. There he took the painting out of its frame, wrapped it in a white sheet and headed down the stairs. There was surely a moment of great panic when Perugia twisted the doorknob at the foot of the stairs and found it locked from the inside. He was prepared for an eventuality such as this and had tools with him. He unscrewed the doorknob and slipped it into his pocket, thinking this might unlock the door. But it didn't. He was trapped inside the Louvre with the world's most famous painting tucked under his arm. And then he heard the sound of footsteps approaching. Up the stairs came a plumber making his morning rounds. To the plumber, Perugia looked like a Louvre worker who had accidentally been locked in overnight. Not an unheard of occurrence. He opened the door and let Perugia out, thinking nothing of the Mona Lisa-shaped package that Perugia carried with him. It would be two years before the Mona Lisa was seen again. The investigation was a fiasco that resulted in the dismissal of the head of the Louvre and the head of the Paris police. International media mocked the lack of security at the Louvre. In fact, this was the first theft to spark the interest of the world media, kicking off a love affair with the elite world of high-priced art and its theft. The most cinematic and resounding success for the monument's men was the salvation of the 12,000 masterpieces destined for Hitler's planned Linz Museum, which was stored in an ancient salt mine at Alsace in Austria, which had been converted by the Nazis into a secret stolen art warehouse. It was supervised by a ferocious SS officer, August Eigruber, who was determined to destroy all of the art if he could not defend it against the Allies. This is where the most famous pieces were kept, including gems by Vermeer, Raphael, Rembrandt and a who's who of old master artists. But there is some confusion as to whether the Mona Lisa was there as well. There are two primary source documents that attest to the Mona Lisa's presence in the Altasay salt mine. The report of a secret mission called Operation Ebensburg, in which four Austrian double agents were parachuted into the Alps to delay the destruction of the Altasay mine until the Third Army could arrive, stated that the double agents saved such priceless objects as the Louvre's Mona Lisa. Another document from the 12th of December 1945 notes that the Mona Lisa from Paris is included in 80 wagons of art and cultural objects from across Europe that were found in the mine. And yet there is no record beyond these two documents of the world's most famous painting being part of the world's most famous hoard fluted art. Surely that would have been noteworthy, a rescued prize as famous as the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb. The Louvre remained reticent about whether it had lost the Mona Lisa at all. 
The only documents about the painting during World War II attest to it have been crated up on August 27, 1939 and sent with other French national treasures to a series of five chateaux for safekeeping, theoretically just ahead of the advance of the Nazis south through France, though the invaders quickly overtook the entire country. The next document that refers to the painting is not until the 16th of June 1945, when the painting was listed as having been returned safely to the Louvre. Its whereabouts during the war are unrecorded, but are they unknown? The latest word from the Louvre is that an identical copy of the Mona Lisa, also from the 16th century, and difficult for any non-specialist to distinguish from the original, was one of a few thousand works that were gathered at the Musée National de l'Occupation for whom owners could not be found. This copy was marked MNR 265. After five years had passed with no one able to prove ownership, it went to the Louvre. From 1950 onward, it hung on the wall outside the office of the director of the museum. Based on the available evidence and a little detective work, a plausible, though unconfirmed, conclusion may be reached as to what happened to the Mona Lisa during the war. A painting was crated up in 1939 and sent to various castles, just ahead of Nazi hands. But it was this 16th century copy, not the original. Knowing that the Mona Lisa would be such an obvious target for Nazi art hunters, the Louvre may have kept the original hidden in Paris while the copy led the Nazis on a wild goose chase. This would explain why the Mona Lisa did return from Altosse, but why it may also be that the Mona Lisa never left Paris. It was the copy that was stolen, hidden at Altosse and recovered. Some who saw it assumed it was the original, while others, specifically the Art Savvy Monuments men who catalogued the art saved from the salt mine, recognised that it was only a copy. California's largest lake is also its worst one. As you drive past it, you get to see pristine white beaches with blue waters. But if you climb out of your car and take a closer look, I wouldn't recommend this, you suddenly realise how horribly depressing the place is. The white sand is in fact not sand at all, it is just pulverised bones from the millions of fish that died there, 
The water is actually murky brown. The blue colour is only a reflection of the desert sky. And you cannot possibly ignore the putrid stench. Like a large fish market that only sells rotten fish. Sultan Sea Beach, a graveyard made up of millions of fish bones. And this is written by Sumitra and it's from the oddityCentral.com website. The very existence of Sultan Sea is an accident. It formed in 1905 when an irrigation canal from the Colorado River broke after heavy rainfall. The river burst through the banks of the canal and millions of gallons of water spilled over into a dried-out lake bed in the California desert. Salton Sea had its heyday in the 1950s and 60s. It was a popular tourist attraction back then, marketed as a miracle in the desert. Over half a million visitors flocked to the beach every year. Celebrities like the Beach Boys and Sonny Bono were regular visitors. They came to swim and drive speedboats. It was hot property too. Real estate agents flew their clients over the area in small aircraft and struck deals without ever landing to view the property. Unfortunately, none of that was to last. The artificial lake was doomed right from the beginning. Without an inlet or an outlet, it ended up leaching salt, fertilizers and pesticides from the soil of the surrounding agricultural land. Salton Sea is actually 30% saltier than the Pacific Ocean. By the 1970s, it became completely unfit to sustain any kind of life. The shoreline was littered with millions of dead fish. Salton Sea's current state is certainly no indicator of its past glory. According to Jamie Lee Curtis, a traveller who recently visited the place and wrote about it on Vice, it's like a fish market at the end of a long summer day. Only instead of keeping the fish on ice, this fish market keeps them on piles of diarrhoea. Jamie Lee wrote that he visited a few local attractions around the beach as well. The world-famous International Banana Museum and the Salton Sea History Museum, neither of which were operational. When he spotted a man fishing with his two sons in a creek, he stopped to speak to them. There's no fish here. I just do this to get my sons out of the house, the man said. The Vice article featured apocalyptic photographs of abandoned homes and broken structures at the town of Bombay Beach, which used to be the most developed part of Salton Sea. As the lake began to burst its banks, the town was flooded on a regular basis. In the 1980s, local authorities built a dike around half the town. The dry side of the dike is doing slightly better, but it certainly isn't a thriving settlement. The only people who visit Salton Sea these days are documentary filmmakers or people who are into disaster tourism. According to a BBC report, the worst part isn't the water or the shore, but the stuff that lies at the bottom. If the lake were to dry out at some point, it would unleash clouds of toxic dust across Southern California. Let's hope that that doesn't happen anytime soon. If you'd like to see a few photographs and a little video about it, visit the show notes at origins.info and click on the link to episode 85 and then on the link to this article of the Mysteries Abound podcast.
and from the www.weirdus.com. Beyond the Pale, the albino cannibals of Ghost Mountain. Tales of strange people bonded together in self-policing communities are common throughout the states, and indeed throughout the world. Pennsylvania is no exception. These communities can include anybody out of the ordinary, but the particular favourite candidates for such campfire scare stories are albinos. There's nothing like a lack of pigmentation to send the overactive imagination into a tailspin. Pale skin and pale blue or red eyes are the stuff of vampires, and indeed some believe that the albino's discomfort with bright light may have led to many of the tales of night-walking bloodsuckers. But if any communities of albinos do exist in the mountains of Pennsylvania, let's inject a sense of civility into the proceedings here. Driving around people's homes by night with the intention of disturbing them is a form of persecution. Let's treat these stories as what they are. Good fun, and not a call to single out any group for unpleasant treatment. Every rural area in the country seems to be inhabited by a reclusive band of albinos. We here in Sellersville, Pennsylvania have our own. These cannibalistic, child-stealing, rock-salt-shooting, circus-escaping, inbreeding clan of albinos are said to live high up in the woods on Haycock Mountain and were the stuff of legend in my childhood. They're said to waylay unwary travellers and eat them. They supposedly sometimes raid local farms for livestock and leave gruesome evidence behind. Local police know of their existence and are scared to go up the mountain. They live in a huge concrete house with no windows and throw firecrackers at passing cars in the middle of the night. They hide in trees and drop down onto unsuspecting hikers, dragging them away to become dinner for the rest of the clan. They block back roads and perform unspeakable rites on moonlit nights. They cavort like fairies amongst the trees, frightening passers-by with their unnatural complexion. Sightings of them flitting from tree to tree and being mistaken for errant spectres even supposedly gave one local road its name, Ghost Mountain Road. My own investigations into this have turned up plenty of stories and supposed eyewitness accounts, with some proof in the form of rock salt residue blasted into the cheap paint jobs of local high schoolers' Camaros. But of the albinos themselves, not a trace. Although I did find two abandoned houses, one with all the bathtubs and sinks filled with a mixture of mud, leaves and what may once have been water. A search of local newspaper archives has revealed a depressing lack of corroborating evidence here. But hey, not all the news gets reported, you know. And that's a little report written by Amy McCormick. There's a place we call Ghost Mountain, actually Haycock Mountain, near an old covered bridge where local legend has it that someone had hanged himself. It is also said that if you turn your car on and off three times, your car will cease to start. You can really get a sense of bad vibes around that area. There is a house near there where albinos live. 
The story with them is that if you dare to go onto their property, they will chase you away with a shotgun in hand. A couple of my friends found this out to be true. And that's from Melissa. The albino house. I never saw the actual albinos myself, but did see the house. It's pretty strange. You have to go down a dirt road and just before you reach a cool old-timey red-covered bridge. On the way to the place down the bumpy dirt road are little doors in the side of a hill. Strange tunnel complexes. Hobbit holes and other freaky stuff. It turns out they are really root cellars. But who the hell knows what a root cellar is anymore? And that's from Marco. There is a place where I like to take my friends to that are new to the ghost scene. It's called Ghost Mountain. It's a pretty cool place. It's a dirt road, and once you turn onto the road, you see in this house, which sometimes you can see an elderly lady upstairs knitting. But the great thing about her is you can see right through her. Across the road from the house, there is a wine cellar that goes into the side of the hill. Each of my friends have different stories of what they have seen when they've opened it. The different stories are that they see a huge dark shadow standing right there when they open it. The shadow was sitting in a chair with his head down. There is the covered bridge. Go over the bridge, turn your car off, beep the horn three times, turn your headlights on and you are supposed to see a man hanging there. I've only seen it once. And that's by Gina Lee. music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. And remember we have a Facebook page where you can find out what's happening with the podcasts, when they're due, why there may be a delay, or whatever's going on. www.facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. Or you can get there from the Facebook link at the show notes. And the show notes are held at the Origins podcast website, www.origins.info. And Origins is O-R-I-G-I-N-Z. And on the front page of the Origins website are two icons. Click on the one for Mysteries Abound and it will take you to the Mystery Abound show notes link. I'd like to say a big thank you to Sean Yarnell and Sky Norton for providing a donation to the podcast. And these two lovely people have done it as a monthly subscription. So it's greatly appreciated. And if you'd like to make a donation to the podcast to help with its production costs and its upkeep, you can do so through a link on the front of the show notes page. And from the www.creepypasta.com An article written by Mike McDee Joseph's Grove You're twisting my words again. As I've already said a hundred times, I have no simple answers for your questions. 
You can't expect me to respond yes or no to questions about complex matters that I haven't begun to recover from. Jerry, you know better than any of these assholes that I'm not the kind of guy who rattles easily. I don't belong in this loony bin. Yes, I did agree to cooperate. If I have to answer you straight, then I will, but only if you let me explain the details. I admit to spending the previous weekend with Arthur and Samantha Duncan at the old Charl estate on Riley's Rock, and I confess to the property's hasty demolition. The Duncan's murders are thankfully not on my conscience, but my inability to prevent them is. The bullet was mine, but I didn't kill Sam. She was already dead. I just killed the bitch that stole her body. Not sure what that adds up to in court. And I didn't do it all in a raving mania. You got to believe me. Through this whole incident I was perfectly sound in mind until I uprooted that damned tree. It was that final horror that sent me off the deep end and ultimately landed me here. I really don't expect any of you to believe what I'm about to disclose, but I've got the right to explain myself. I need another whiskey before I start, Jerry, if you don't mind. The Duncans wanted to turn the estate into a vacation resort. God knows the place had more rooms than anyone knew what to do with. Art never told me how he got his hands on the property, just that he wanted me in charge of hotel security. I needed the money, and I hadn't had a steady income since the war. Art had better luck in that area, the rich bastard. Besides that, he felt like he owed me one for that bullet I caught in his stead. He and his wife had to bring their own hired help, four foreigners who didn't speak a word of English, because they couldn't find any in town. The locals weren't crazy about the place. We were told that centuries ago a tribe of druids tainted the rock with ritual blood spilling, which none of us considered very seriously at all, though it still almost turned Sam off the place. Sweetest lady I ever knew, but a little too sensitive sometimes, even for a Catholic. I have to cut her a little slack though. After her last stillbirth, she stopped taking her medications and her neurotic lapses got more frequent. Ephraim and Joseph Shaw were Jewish immigrants who migrated to the States a century ago and built a hotel on the rock with the same dream as the Duncans of running a vacation resort and raising a family. And like the Duncans, the Shawls had trouble birthing children. They tried as hard as they could to have a baby, but nothing seemed to work. And by the time they moved that little hick town by Riley's Rock, they'd all but given up. Some of the locals said Joseph wasn't meant to spawn. Even now they always say it quietly, like they're afraid Joseph will overhear. Yet shortly after they arrived, Joseph became pregnant, and for a while the shawls had more spring in their step than usual. Explains how Ephraim managed to get the hotel built so quickly. Joseph spent her pregnancy planting and nursing a garden on the west end of the property and surrounded it with a beautiful cherry grove. A nice way to celebrate the new life she would soon bring into the world, if you ask me. But the baby never got a name. Stillbirth, you see. The shawls buried the baby in the grove near a young sapling 
and Joseph let it all grow out of control until the rock had itself a nice toupee of greenery. Ephraim tried to forget they ever had the baby, but Joza must have felt like she'd been robbed of her motherhood because she visited the grave every day to keep the poor kid's spirit company. For the next ten years, tenants heard her singing out there for hours at a time. One day Jasa led Ephraim into the grove, and neither of them ever came back. Then the shawl's tenants started disappearing. Rumour has it the same way Joseph did, one by one, like in a trance, they walked into the grove and ceased to exist. The locals shunned the property for fear they'd disappear too. They closed off the roads to Riley's Rock until the trees and foliage covered them up. The grove withered and decayed and the house degenerated into a mausoleum for the shawls and their nameless baby. In spite of its history, the Duncans loved the place. It was a fixer-upper for sure. Everything was caked in dust, the furniture had all but fallen apart and the ceiling had collapsed in two rooms and let the spring drizzles damage everything inside. But they loved it and they couldn't wait to get started. I'll admit I was just as excited. Eight bedrooms, four bathrooms, dining hall with an ocean view, the sweet smell of the sea in the air, a little polish and it would have been a beautiful place. We set to work right away, dusting the countertops, polishing the windows, clearing the busted furniture out to make way for the new due to arrive that weekend. The carpenters were supposed to show up today, actually. We spent the rest of Friday cleaning, then drove into town for dinner and beds at the local inn. The dream changed everything. God, I remember it perfectly. I walked through an endless void of white mist like I was standing on the ocean surface on the coldest night of winter. I walked on and on for what seemed like days until suddenly the fog lifted to reveal a blood-red sky and an ancient crooked tree towering over a field of shriveled greenery and sterile earth, with eight or nine limp bodies dangling from its naked branches like trophies. Not from nooses, Jerry. That damned tree gripped their broken necks like a child would his playthings. And there was a woman in a tattered house dress with long tangled locks of black hair. She stood ahead of me, facing the tree, singing to it in some foreign language. She stopped abruptly, looked over her shoulder and shot me the meanest glare I'd ever seen. She had no colour in her face, just a sickly stone grey. And Jesus, her eyes, solid white like golf balls, yet somehow expressing hatred and malignance rivaling hells. She didn't want me there, but I couldn't turn away. My feet had grown roots. The dream was vivid to all the senses. I smelled the damp earth, eons old, and the cold of the fog bit my flesh like mosquitoes. Those horrible eyes were suddenly inches away from mine, piercing me like gunshots. I woke up in a cold sweat, so badly shaken I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. We all must have had the same dream, because everyone started acting weird the following morning. The workers kept whispering to each other, and whenever I asked them what the problem was, they clammed up and went on about their business. Sam was particularly jumpy, and the first to lose it, 
We hadn't been working for more than two hours when we heard her scream. Everyone rushed to the source and found her shivering in her husband's arms on the ladies' room floor. She'd gone in there to wash her face, looked in the mirror and saw someone else looking back. Sam just wasn't the same after that. All day Saturday she wasn't much use to anyone. A nervous wreck, keeping mostly to herself, incapable of sitting for more than two seconds like she was constipated. Twice I caught her staring out the dining hall windows towards Joseph Shaw's grove of dead trees. She just stood there, staring. And when I said her name, she'd snap out of it and go about her day like it never happened. She didn't even remember walking into the room. Art wasn't happy, let me tell you. Sam's neurotic behaviour had been grating on him for months. But this was the worst she'd ever been. He started losing his temper at the drop of a hat, shouted at her a lot, smacked the workers around from time to time, which didn't improve their odd behaviour much. The new furniture arrived late in the evening, and none of us had the strength to bother with it. But Art and Sam were set on staying the night at the hotel this time, and I wasn't willing to leave them alone at night in an eerie house with no electricity. So we dragged the Duncan's bed into their room, and I put one of the new lobby couches in the hall just outside the door and parked myself on it. Said goodnight, cleaned my sidearm, then read Arthur Conan Doyle till I passed out. The damn dream haunted my sleep again that very night. The fog, the tree, the hanging bodies. I woke up with a sissy yelp this time, catapulting off the couch onto the floor. I sat panting in the corridor for a long time, blind as a bat because the place had no electricity like I told you. I took in a deep breath to calm my nerves and held it fast when I heard another set of lungs breathing only a few steps away. Someone was standing there in the dark, watching me. Sam's voice asked if I was all right, and for a few minutes I just stammered like a fool, while she blindly felt around my face to see where I was, then took my hands and helped me to my feet. That's when I noticed how dirty her hands were. My fingers came away caked in soil, like she'd been out digging holes with her hands all day. I asked her about it while searching my pockets for my flashlight. I've been in the grove, she said. The grove, I said. I started to ask what she was doing out there in the cold, so late at night, as I fished out the flashlight and flicked it on. Instead of Sam's pretty face, I saw that hateful white-eyed scowl from my nightmares and I dropped the light and screamed and screamed. You should have seen me, tipping over my feet, crashing headlong into walls. I about threw myself into the car and pressed the gas pedal to the floor all the way to town. Damn, my cowardly ass to hell. I left poor Art alone with that. With that, God knows what. Would I be telling you this if I'd killed them all and burnt the place down to cover my tracks? Would I make up a story if I knew full well you wouldn't buy it? That would be pointless, wouldn't it? Besides, one little ghost isn't what made me liberate that place. Yeah, that's right. I said liberate, because that's exactly what I did. I liberated Riley's Rock from an ancient, unspeakable taint. A fluke of the natural world that I still can't wrap my head around. 
When the workers set off for the hotel Sunday morning, I didn't go with them, scared too far out of my wits. But eventually guilt kicked in and I started thinking about how good the Duncans had been to me all these years, and ditching them seemed a lousy way to pay them back. Mind you, at the time, I still wasn't sure what I saw. At the time, I was beginning to think my imagination was just having a little fun with me. So I drove back, composing and rehearsing an elaborate apology in my head. Riley's Rock had put on a biting cold while I was gone. Like winter had it early. The minute I walked into the hotel lobby, Art greeted me in hysterics. His eyes rolled around in his head like marbles and he kept saying, Something's got my Sammy Brad. Something's got her. I didn't understand it till I saw it for myself. Art had been organising his new office, when suddenly he noticed how quiet the old house had gotten. He searched the hotel from top to bottom and couldn't find a trace of his hired help. Instead he found Sam standing at the dining hall window, staring out at the dead grove, singing a sullen lullaby to nobody at all. She was different. I can't say how. Sam just wasn't Sam anymore. When she came in, she turned and glanced at us with disinterest, like we were strangers to her. She gave us a tiny smile with no heart in it, the kind of routine smile you give someone when you've had a really bad day and you don't want to talk about it. But while the pretty smile was unmistakably Sam Duncan's, the eyes behind it belonged to another person, like someone was wearing Sam's face as a mask. One that didn't quite fit right. All I knew for sure was that the frigid air enveloping Riley's rock emanated from her. After watching the woman sing stupidly to the window for several minutes, Art and I decided one of us had to approach her and ask her who she was. I didn't have the courage, and Art was married to her anyway, possessed or not. Up close she seemed to finally recognise her husband, smiled warmly and held his hand like they were high school sweethearts all over again. Goosebump swept up his arm like she was icy to the touch. Come with me to the grove, she said. Come and see our baby. He kept at Sam's heels in a dog-like trance as she went out the door may be enslaved by that dreadful urge to see what horror was yet to come. The same urge that goaded me into following them. God help me, I followed them, Jerry. I followed them into that sea of shriveled trunks and crooked branches to the barren garden in its belly. I followed them to that horrid black tree, the one that tortured me in my sleep for two nights, the only still living thing in the entire garden, whose bald boughs perked up when it felt the three of us approaching. Sam kept singing those damned lullabies while the tree somehow swayed in time. A terrible unseen force beckoned us. Art walked right up to the ugly thing and put his hand on its trunk. He suddenly jerked his hand away in horror and looked at me with a dismayed expression. I'll never forget. His mouth opening fish-like as if trying to find the words to share an awful revelation with me. Our eyes instinctively fell to the ground. One of us screamed, but I don't know which. The Duncan's missing servants hadn't wandered far. Four pale, shriveled faces peeked up at us from the soil at our feet like sprouting cabbages. 
their dead eyes gazing blindly towards the stars. As the great tree twitched, one of them shifted slightly and sank another inch. Jesus, it was like a nightmare. Art's feet vanished. Something took hold of him and pulled him down into the earth. He clawed at the air for something to hold on to, unable to tear his eyes away from that hideous crop of human heads. He was gone in moments, consumed by the garden, nothing left of him but his endless earth-smothered screams. The tree stood still for a moment, as if surprised. Sam continued singing. Something brushed my feet, something alive, a barracuda, taste-testing its prey. Suddenly my limbs thawed and I turned and ran. I ran through the house and into the woods. The thorny bushes and sharp branches thrashed me bloody and I didn't care. I ran and ran and I didn't stop for breath until I made it to a telephone. You're giving me those funny looks again. But I'm telling you, if you'd only been there with me, your hands would be shaking as badly as mine. Hell, you probably wouldn't have the guts to talk about it again, let alone make the return trip to do what I did, to do what had to be done. Jerry, give me another whiskey, or I'm not going to make it through this. I came back with the oil later that evening. More than anything, I wanted to get Sam out of there in one piece. But if I went back to that hotel and found somebody else in her skin, I was going to shoot her right between the eyes. Judging by the charred remains you recovered from the ruins, I think you know how things turned out. She tried to lead me into the grove, Jerry. She wouldn't have done it to me too. You know I love Sam. I couldn't let that thing parade around in her body. Just the thought of it turns my stomach. I cremated her with the rest of the house. I burned the grove too, and boy, all that dead foliage just lit right up like tissue paper. That nightmare tree was the last to go, when all the others had turned to ash. It crackled and blazed and snapped back and forth like a hooked fish. As it wilted in the fire, something cried out from beneath the ground. A piercing, childlike wail that nearly shook Riley's rock out of its seat. The next morning, when the flames finally died... I rented the crane to tear that monster up by the roots and make sure it was dead, and had only just finished the job when you all arrived at the scene and found me raving and cackling in the courtyard. Judging by the way you've treated me, not one of you must have laid eyes on that abomination. But the forensic team is combing the ruins as we speak, right? They're bound to find it right where I left it. I can't wait to see the photos. You'll believe those, I bet. You'll take one look at those roots, and my guess is you'll all be raving and cackling too. I counted around fourteen bodies tangled in them, dry and black and shriveled like prunes. Every drop of fluid sapped out of them. There might be as many as twenty or even thirty, but I stopped counting when I found the husk that used to be Joseph Shawl. She was easy to identify because her baby... That monstrous infant thing the roots sprout and slither out from like a sea anemone was hugging her close, like a crusty old teddy bear. Kind of precious when you think about it.
Well, listeners, that concludes episode 85 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show and hope to see you all again, whether it be another Origins podcast or another Mysteries Abound. Until then, everyone, keep well, keep safe and bye for now. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.